Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julie Ann Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time library book wrangler. Pamela Eucherman is a writer, dancer and homeschooling mum who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins. Hi, Pamela, and welcome back to Middle Grade Mavens for our 66th episode. I can't say that even. 66th? All the 6 is 66. <laughs> <laughs> Even number isn't it? <laughs> yes. So, what has been happening? Oh, uh, well, Manga Boy turned ten over the school holidays. Oh, um, big deal! So, yeah, we had a nice um, distraction from lockdown. Our first, uh, second ISO birthday, and um, yes, now we're back into homeschooling, which is another nice distraction from lockdown and and the fact that we might not actually get out of lockdown anytime soon. Um, yep. Yeah, so we're just hanging out to here when we can finally see friends and get back to activities and the beach and things like that. But it's um, yeah, it's looking pretty dismal, uh, pretty dismal for now. Um, can you, I was just thinking the other day, can you imagine the last time our kids, oh, my I kids know. at least, could do sports and swimming and stuff was back in March. I know. So I just can't so even much. think about it. Yeah, like you know, Manga Boy was a was hugely into basketball. He's not practiced. Well, he's practiced maybe twice in seven months, you know. And they, yep. they're swimming. like, it just, it just feels like, oh my gosh, how are I ever going to get back into it? I mean, they will, yep. but it just feels like such a big step. But anyway, anyway, anyway. Yep. Um, yeah. So there are always books to write and books to read, and we've we've had some amazing, amazing books recently to while away the hours. And yes. I've been learning poetry, like really, really learning the technical aspects of poetry just for something different well you must share your wisdom (laughs) (laughs) because I have no idea about poetry (laughs) well I you know I mean you do poetry at school and we covered it but and you know and I I do I write I mean I've had poetry published in the school magazine and yes yeah but like this is going into the real nitty-gritty of all the different letters and um you know um alliterate which I knew alliteration but um what's it consternation no I, look, I can't even know I'm actually really, really tired at the moment so my brain's not yes. working but um you know all those really, really technical aspects um yeah and just wow like you, you can really apply it not just to poetry but to prose writing as well which is is really nice and, and you know just it's another sort of little string to your bow as an author but just something interesting and it's 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 that same um grammar curriculum that I was using yeah before which is um it's just it's really nice it's really sort of easy going because it's written for high school kids yeah that's <laughs> but it's great but it's really in-depth you know you, this is not what you are high you know kids at public school in Australia would be doing it's well maybe they are but it's not what we did when we were in high school no um but yeah, really, really engaging and really easy to, to sort of pick up. So, cool. yeah, that's good. Kind of, you know, one way to use your hours. 
about you, Julie? Painting still? Uh, yes, we are halfway through Butter Icing Paint Fest. <laughs> Six walls to go. Um, and oh, I'm so annoyed. I had a full day planned, but I ran out of no more gaps and like mm. had to wait two days for my Bunnings order of my oh. two containers of no more gaps. Oh, so yet again, I'll brave the tradie line tomorrow with my measly order, but alas, at yeah. any rate, I'll be <laughs> finished by December 24. But apart from that, I need yes. some citrus feed. I'm like, oh, I'm not really going to go to Bunnings at the moment. It's just for citrus feed. Oh, look, I'm devoted. I'm devoted. I'm I'm in for the long haul with this painting thing. So anyway, school is back, and which is good because I was at the point of any mention of the phrase "Mum, can we send an electrical charge into my brain, or a squirt of lemon juice into a paper cut?" So yes, I was ready for school return. And I don't know about anyone else in Melbourne, but I've kind of moped around the house all day, even though I've been longing for the school return. Yeah. It's so, hard, isn't it? It really yes. is hard when you're suddenly they're not there anymore. Yeah. I, yes. yeah. Although I have to say I was threatening to drive them to local, you know, we homeschool for those of you who listen and don't or don't listen. <laughs> yes. Um, but I was ready to drive them to local public school and drop them off this morning. So, yeah. Just go and <laughs> just go and enroll yourselves. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit like, oh, everybody else is getting a break and I'm not. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I just feel for you. Anyway, no, on to the books. Yes. Tell us, Pamela, so what is the title of today's book? Yes, today I'm reviewing The Grandest Bookshop in the World by Amelia Mello, published by Affirm Press um, on that big day of books September 29 yes. 2020 yeah yes would you share the jacket blurb yes in 1893 Coles Book Arcade in Melbourne is the grandest bookshop in the world brimming with every curiosity imaginable each day brings fresh delights for the siblings voice changing sweets talking parrots a new story written just for them by their eccentric father when Pearl and Valley learn that Pa has risked the arcade and himself in a shocking deal with the mysterious Obscuro Smith, the sibling, siblings hatch a plan. Soon they are swept into a dangerous game with impossibly high stakes. Defeat seven challenges by the stroke of midnight and both the arcade and their father will be restored. But if they fail, Pearl and Valley won't just lose Pa, they'll forget that he and the arcade ever existed. Oh, chills. Mm. this yeah. is going on my <laughs> christmas list yeah 100 you're gonna have this one yeah yes. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and what genre would you class this as oh magical realism oh with really a huge, yeah <laughs> with a huge dose of nostalgia <laughs> so, yay yeah. and yes. a bit of historical fiction as well so, yeah. this was made for us in other words thank you amelia yeah Yes, yes, yes. Perfect. Yeah. And what is the estimated word count? Ha! Huh, well, I didn't estimate because I forgot. But um, Amelia does talk about the word count in in the interview, and I think it was around seventy thousand words in the end. Oh, cheat! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it. <laughs> and tell us about it. 
Yeah, so it's 1890 and Pearl and Valley Cole live in the famous Coles Book Arcade in Melbourne with their mother, father and three other siblings. But there is one sibling missing, their sister Ruby, who died of scarlet fever three years before. Pearl spends much of her day reading books and reading people and trying to improve her magic. She adores her father, whose magic is woven into the fabric of the book arcade. Then she meets the Obscuro Smith, a mysterious, tricky man, and she knows something is not right about him. Her father has made a terrible deal with the Obscuro Smith. He will do anything to see his daughter Ruby again. But the Obscuro, tri- uh, Obscuro Smith is not only tricky, he seems to have no heart. The Ruby that he produces is not the real Ruby, even though the trade was for the arcade. Pearl notices that the arcade and her father are becoming sick and she knows the Obscuro Smith is behind it. She and her brother Valley confront the Obscuro Smith and are also swept into making a deal they'd rather not. A deal to play a dangerous game in order to save their father's life. Now they must, as a team, work together to solve the Obscuro Smith's tricky puzzles and avoid his snares while he slowly plucks their wonderful memories of the arcade and of their family for his own. Can I, can I just say how hard it is to say Obscure Smith? Yes. Over again. <laughs> now that you have said it several times, I can understand. <laughs> oh, it just sounds so amazing. Yeah. And yeah. what was your overall enjoyment? Yeah, I think you can tell this is an alluring story full of wonder and magic and puzzles and riddles. For those who don't know, the Coles Book Arcade was real. In fact, there was more than one, and the one that the book is based on is the one that was on Burke Street in Melbourne, which is now where Burke Street Mall is, if you're a Melbourneian. Um, I think the David Jones department store is there now. Ah, um, yes. Yeah. Um, and Edward Cole and his wife and all of the children in the book were real people. Amelia did a lot of research into the Cole family, who did lose a daughter named Ruby to Scarlet Fever, And she also did a lot of research into Melbourne in the 1800s, which you'll hear in the interview. The relationships between each of the Coles, especially the siblings, were really considered and heartwarming. And I love that it celebrated imagination and quick thinking and most of all, books. Now, the the Obscura Smith is an interesting character, sort of a darker, even trickier and more magical Willy Wonka without the redeeming qualities at the end Um, Mm. and a great contrast to the real world details of Melbourne in the 1890s which are dotted through the book and I have to say I wrote this review before I talked to Amelia so (laughs) these comparisons were mine before I spoke to her Um, yeah and as a Melbourneian it was thrilling to recognize some of this detail the names and the places and when we finally can get back to the Melbourne Museum I'll be visiting the history of Victoria section where they have a few little remaining original treasures from the book arcade the original one that stood there um yeah it's it's a vibrant novel full of wonder and joy and heartache and is just a beautiful bridge between 1890s melbourne and now with a message of hope and beauty just gorgeous and and let me just mention that gorgeous cover by another melbourneian well actually um now that i remember amelia's not actually in melbourne she does she lives in country victoria but you know we're yep. in Melbourne. We'll claim her. Book. Yep. We'll claim her. Um, the cover was by another Melbourneian, Sylvia Morris. And I met Sylvia um, a few years ago at an event and was just really taken by her atmospheric and whimsical illustrations. And I've seen her picking up more and more work. And I think she was just the perfect choice for this book. The cover is just beautiful and it suits is. the tone of the book perfectly. It's and exquisite. 
Yeah, and it also, and I've since since I wrote this, I, I've actually seen the cover of Edward Cole's um, funny picture book, and so this cover is is kind of a modern, uh, um, more whimsical sort of nod to that one as well, which is oh, just beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. This is screaming for me to get. Yeah, I know. And you weren't going to get it first. And I snubbed it. I know. It. I, I, you. I hope you feel my sacrifice. <laughs> I do. I really do. And I'm not sending you this one because I'm going to keep it, but I'll buy you the other one if you want. It's okay, Pamela. I forgive you. But we must visit the um, Victorian Museum together. Yeah. Like, wouldn't that be a, you know? Yeah, that's, oh. A celebration oh of of coming out of yes. lockdown, and we can meet because we're both opposite sides of the city. We can meet in the middle, and we yeah. will have a chai latte each. And that's oh. right. We'll go to the the other tea room. The tea rooms on uh, Collins Street, and we'll take some yeah. photos, Amelia. We promise. Yeah, It'll be amazing. <laughs> and there is actually a, an arcade. Uh, I think it's there's a little laneway, and I forget the name of the laneway now. That has a roof, a sort of angled roof that was um from the original Coles arcade and oh. just this roof this little lane is still there so we, we can go and see oh, that one as well let's go yep <laughs> we'll ditch the kids that's right we'll yep. do it. <laughs> uh, it must be my turn is that right oh no hang on who love yep. who will love this book <laughs> what age would you recommend it for um, well, it goes without saying, really, this is a great book for lovers of magical realism, books, riddles and words. And, yeah, I'd say it's for about nine up. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm, I think Gigi might like this. No, oh, I'll have to not. wrestle it off her. She will. She <laughs> I'll never get to read this book. <laughs> well, we, do, we are have, we we're just talking, we're having a break over Christmas, yes. so we're piling up all the books that we want to read in that, in that time. So your turn, Julie. What book are you doing today? I am doing How to Write the Soundtrack to Your Life by Fiona Hardy, illustrated by Jess Rackliff, published by Affirm in September 2020. Oh, yes, and yes, another great cover. Um, Jess is also yes. from Melbourne and I know her quite well. So yes. it's nice to see names we know. Um, and could you share the jacket blue with us, please? Yes. Murphy Parker is going to be a songwriter if she can ever find the courage to let anyone hear her music. When Murphy dares to play one of her songs in music class, she's shocked by how much her classmates love it. And her, that is, until the next day when they hear a suspiciously similar tune and accuse Murphy of stealing it. Someone is playing Murphy's music and claiming it as their own, but who? And why, desperate to clear her name and claim her songs, Murphy makes an unlikely alliance. But it turns out that friendship might be even more complicated than tracking down a song thief. Oh, it sounds like a great tween book. <laughs> yes. Uh, what genre would you classify it as? This is middle grade contemporary with a music theme. Huh. I think there are many out there with a the music theme on there. No, there are not. Hmm, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the estimated word count? I'd say this was around 75,000. Okay, about the same thing. Um, can you tell us about it? Sure. Murphy is the shy kid who writes songs, songs that help her unravel the meaning of life 
and give her a chance to express what is deep inside. Songs she doesn't want anyone else to hear. Well, at least not at the moment. So when a song she finally has the courage to perform during a music class is stolen and put onto, put onto YouTube, Murphy finds herself being considered the perpetrator of the crime, not the victim. That's interesting. Um, what was your overall enjoyment? This was another wonderful and interesting insight into the minds of the middle grade audience. Murphy had so much to overcome in her short life with not only dealing with her own issues, but that of her dad's clinical depression. With another eclectic cast of characters, some we have come to love in Fiona's first book, we delve into the deep, dark waters of solving who stole Murphy's song. Now, the mystery and intrigue builds gradually, and along the way, we also see Murphy grow beautifully as a character, both in strength and confidence. She manages to navigate the troubled waters of friendship making this another heartfelt coming of age and heart-rendering read. My favourite part of the book was actually the quirky chapter headings, which anyone above the age of 30 will definitely recognise, making this another lovely instalment in Fiona's middle grade meanderings. The cover, as usual, by Jess Ratcliffe is gorgeous, stamping out her niche as a true middle grade illustrator, as well as a picture book maven. So there you have it. Another great author-illustrator combination, I believe, has been born. Oh, nice. So is this a sequel to the first book, How to Make a Movie in 12 Days? No, it's a standalone but sort of in the same world, if you know what I mean. Okay. Oh, nice. And who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? This would suit confident readers, probably 10 plus. Okay. Up a bit of grade. Yeah. Back to you, Pamela. What is the title of your second book? Yeah, so my second book is Never and Forever, the final book in the Wizards of Once series by Cressida Cowell, published in Australia by Hachette Children's Books on September the 22nd, 2020. Oh, and would you share the jacket blurb with us? Yeah. Zar and Wish have found the ingredients for the spell to get rid of witches. Now the King Witch is calling them to the Lake of the Lost, but first they must mix the potion in the Cup of Second Chances. Can they defeat the hungry Tatsil Worm? Monster? Can they defeat the hungry Tatsil Worm monster and escape with the cup? And will the spell be strong enough to lift the curse of the Wildwoods? Or will witches reign forever? Wow, you obviously need to know the world of this one, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) because my head is spinning (laughs) yes and what genre would you class this as purely fantasy (laughs) beautiful (laughs) and what is the estimated work count um it's actually really hard to tell because there are so many illustrations and extra side notes and songs and spells Um, i guess a real guess i'd say it's around 40k i read it in about three hours i read it in one day so yeah yeah Yep. Well, we, we haven't got this yet for Giselle, I wonder. She's very against wizards, so who knows? Uh, Maybe I I'll think, throw her in. I think she'll love it. Um, it's not your average wizard book. And it's Zara and Wish are boy and girl, equal main characters. So, you know. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I think we might put this on her Christmas list. Mm. I'll do. Yeah, we, we love it. So tell us about it. 
Yeah, so as I said, this is the final book in the Wizards of Want series and I've been meaning to talk about these books for a while because they have been a huge hit in my house. Joke Boy recently read the whole How to Train Your Dragon series, all I think it's 12 books, and absolutely loved it, loved the whole series. So it was natural to go on to this series. Um, so the series is about Zar, who's a wizard and hasn't yet come into his powers, and Wish, who is a warrior and she shouldn't have magical powers. What's worse is that they are children of wizard and warrior loyal royalty. Wizards and warriors are sworn enemies, so they shouldn't be friends. But Zar and Wish do become friends when Zar tries to trap a witch to take its power. And Wish finds out that she does have power, a special once in a lifetime, once in a thousand lifetimes magic that works on iron. As well as a fear of witches and ma magical power, Zar and Wish have another thing in common. Their royal parents are ashamed of them and want to see them locked up. To protect them they claim the first three books in the series see them go on a quest to find the impossible ingredients for a spell to get rid of witches and in this fourth book they are ready to do battle with the king witch and prove to everyone that they are more than just silly children wishes and czar's parents are chasing them to put an end to their risky mission the witches are gathering and the druids who are supposed to be the wizard's allies are in league with the witches Zar's little hairy fairy squeeze juice, who was infected with witch stain in the previous book, is close to death. Wish and Zar's parents seem to be getting along pretty well, despite the fact that they're supposed to hate each other. And, well, it all comes together in the final surprising conclusion, mm. <laughs> which I'm really not going to spoil because, it, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a big build-up. Yeah. So overall enjoyment. Well, if you can't already tell, I love these books. Cressida Cowell is incredibly creative and brilliant in her storytelling as well as in her illustrations. There is so much to engage readers in this book, but there's also a lot of heart. The way she weaves everything together and sprinkles it with some pretty big philosophical questions and moral lessons in is so very, very clever. There are songs that are repeated throughout the books, side stories, notes, spells, and it all seems quite loosely put together with the rough drawings, but everything is very considered. In the beginning of the first book, you were, intru you were introduced to the um, mysterious narrator and you are kept guessing until the very end of this book, which is a very clever strategy, I have to say. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know that the narrator is part of the story, but it also means that the narrator quite often breaks that fourth wall and talks to the reader, which you know, is, it's, it's done in a very endearing way. I love it. Yeah. Um, I also love that Zara and Wish are sort of yin and yang figures, the, the boy who thinks too much of him, himself, who has no magic but should, who is reckless and impulsive and just wants to impress his father. And then the trampled girl who shouldn't have magic but does and just wants her mother to be proud of her. Just they just, you know, they just sort of fit together really well. And then there is a huge cast of supporting characters who are introduced slowly so that you don't lose track of them, but who each have a role to play. It starts off a little slowly in the first book, but layers are added and, and added until the very end. And then they all come together in a brilliant and unpredictable conclusion, which is oh. when you get to find out there's this narrator who you've been waiting oh. to, you know, for four books. Oh, <laughs> I, do, I have to admit, joke boy, the book arrived, flicked right to the back of the book. I bet. <laughs> and found out who it was. And I made him, I made him promise not to tell me. So yeah. <laughs> I waited. And he's itching to tell his brother now, so oh. I just have to keep him quiet. <laughs> We're going to have to get this, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I think Giselle will love it. So who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? 
I think it's great for children nine and up to read to themselves, but it's it's neither too heavy nor too difficult for a strong child reader younger than that to read it or as a read aloud. I think it's fabulous for older primary age kids who are reluctant readers mm. um, and just anyone who loves the fantasy genre. Yep. Very, I, I'm a huge fan of Cressida Cowell. I think she's just, yeah. Same. Just so, so creative. And her best friend is Lauren Child. I mean. And I'm the big fan of Lauren Child. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> on, Julie. That's you and me in, in 10, 15 years. 20 right? years. 20 years. Maybe 20. Years. Maybe 20. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're so good. Very talented. So that is it for our reviews. But wait, we have more gold on its way with Pamela chatting to Amelia Mella about the grandest bookshop in the world. And I chat with Leanne Tanner about all things writerly and a clue for Clara. So stay tuned, folks. See you next time. Amelia Mellor decided at age three that she wanted to work in a shop surrounded by books that I have written, and she has been relentlessly pursuing that dream ever since. The Grandest Bookshop in the World is her debut novel, and I'm delighted to have her here on the podcast. Welcome, Amelia. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I have to say, Amelia, how could you not be a writer with such a poetic name? It's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't pick it, but I did decide to keep it, so... <laughs> Good decision. Good decision. Um, and congratulations on a beautiful book. It's already making waves, which is amazing given that, you know, well, you're in, you're not quite in lockdown, but us in here in Melbourne are in lockdown. And I guess um, given that the book is set in Melbourne, that's quite a big market for you. Uh, yes. Could not have foreseen that at all, but it's, um, it is, I'm very pleased with how it's going. Um, lots of great feedback from Melbourne booksellers um, and from local ones in my area too, Alpine, Victoria. Uh, yeah, so, you know, even though we didn't get to get, we didn't get to have a big tour, which would have been nice, um, mm. I've been doing a lot of virtual events um, and been getting uh, a really fantastic response even without that, um, that personal visit so yeah, yeah no well, quite quite pleased with how it's doing yeah well hopefully you'll get to do that soon and you know it deserves it so it seems that you were born to write the grandest bookshop in the world can you tell us how it all began well I was visiting my friend um and I'm an English teacher she's also an English teacher um and she had a copy of Cole's funny picture book those uh strange um, hardback books that were originally published in the 1800s, but they were also reproduced um, throughout the 1900s. And she had one of these on her shelf and I asked her what it was about. She told me all about Cole's Book Arcade, this fantastic bookshop. Um, and as she was telling me about it, as she was telling me that it was this magnificent three-storey building, with a live band, a lolly shop, a toy shop, a fernery with talking parrots and live monkeys. I was imagining just the most amazing place. And I actually said to her at the time, this is an awesome idea for a kid's book. And she sort of looked at me and said, well, you're a writer, aren't you? Um, and 
you know, one page later as she was reading out this article about um, Cole's book arcade, she read me the ad that Mr. Cole, the founder, published in, um, I think it was the Melbourne Times or maybe the Melbourne Herald in the 1880s. And it said, Cole's new book arcade will open on Cup Day. It is the finest site in Melbourne and the grandest bookshop in the world. And I said to her, oh my God, what a great title. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't sort of take that thought seriously. I sort of thought, oh yeah, it's a cool idea, but I'm working on something else. But then the next week we went to the Melbourne Museum, um, which had some of the old artifacts in it. And we visited the place where it used to be. And we went to the State Library. And at the State Library, I found out that Mr. Cole um, had a family, um, his wife, Eliza, and six kids. And they all actually lived in the book arcade. And when I found out about them, then I couldn't resist it. <laughs> um, and the Coles sort of started coming to life. It's amazing that you found out so much about them. I, I, I hadn't even heard of it. And, you know, now like you said you went to all these different places. Of, wow, this all really existed. It's fantastic. Yeah, I did have to do some pretty um, unusual types of research. Um, I got right into the archives at the State Library. There were uh, letters. There were photographs. The photos were actually really helpful. Um, I found several out of print books, um, including the one that Pearl, um, the fifth child wrote when she grew up. Um, and the May Gibbs Trust who um, gave me a fellowship to continue writing it. Um, they actually encouraged me to make contact with the descendants. <laughs> so I ended oh, wow. up talking to, uh, to one of the descendants as well. I went to her house um, and she had some pictures to show as well. So, yeah, I really did go on a journey with the research. Wow. Um, so that was going to be my next question. What was the most surprising thing that you found in the research that you did? I think my biggest surprise was quite early on because um, one of the things that surprised me the most was that the Victorians were not as stern as I suppose we're always led to believe. When I started reading Mr. Cole's funny picture books and joke books and his writings and, and so on, um, I started to see just how much they're like us. Like they started to become human through this writing, um, which the photos actually didn't do because they always had those very, very serious expressions because they believed that that was more artistic um, and the technology played a role as well. Uh, but yeah, my biggest surprise was finding out how modern the Cole family were and how funny. I related to them a lot um, <laughs> because I am also from a pretty big family. Um, but also their values were really, um, modern, I suppose, really progressive. Mr. Cole was against the white Australia policy. He supported the rational dress movement, which was um, all about uh, championing clothes that didn't restrict 
people's movement or, or, you know, do anything to their body that was bad for them. So, you know, talking about high heels and corsets and that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, it, it was really strange because Mr. Cole was quite a sort of old fashioned person in some ways, because, you know, even as time moved on, he continued to wear his old Victorian clothes, even when his sons had sort of were wearing the Edwardian clothes in the photos, but um, he was really progressive and the family was really forward thinking and uh, that really surprised me. So I was really happy to find out that they were sort of compatible <laughs> with, um, with my values and with the story for children living now. Yeah. And that was one of the things I wondered while I was reading. It was, you know, was, was he really like this? So that's great to hear. Yes. Um, I will say I did idealize Mr. Cole a tiny bit um, because the thing is he was progressive for his time. There are certain writings um, and certain things that, you know, that nowadays you would sort of go, Ooh, that's not quite right. Um, a lot of people have mentioned this to me about their copies, their reproductions of the funny picture book. They've said, oh, well, there was this racist picture on page 25. But the thing about that is that Mr. Cole's other writings have to be taken into account. You can't just, you know, look at one cartoon that he stole (laughs) from somewhere um, and make a judgment based just on that because, you know, later in the funny picture books, for instance, if you flip from page, say, 25 to page 70, perhaps, you can find pages and pages of faces of people from all over the world. And his point with that was, you know, to show that, people from all different countries have all different capacities and you know that this person from Syria on page 72 might look like your neighbor um so he really he was a very progressive person I've idealized him slightly you need to look at all of the works to get like a full picture because um yeah it's easy to jump to conclusions when you see something that by our standards doesn't look quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, he, he, um, yeah. he hired, as in the book, he hired people from all around the world, didn't he, in his bookshop? He sure did. Um, there were Chinese stuff, Indian stuff. Um, there was um, a young man called Gabe Mellett um, who was, I don't know what his nationality was. He's described as being black in the biography. Um, and there was also Simon Gabriel, who was quite an interesting character. Um, he was from Mauritius, university educated, spoke four languages. Um, and he had vitiligo. So that's a condition that... Um, changes the pigments in your skin. Um, And so um, Simon Gabriel was born with dark skin, but over a matter of maybe, gee, I think it was about six years, um, all of the skin on his body lost its pigments. So he actually appeared to be white. And this disarmed the um, 
the society of the time because they had, you know, these incredibly racist beliefs. <laughs> um, mm. But, you know, um, Mr. Cole hired him and actually ran a contest to challenge the prejudices of the time. Um, it was, it ran for two weeks. It was basically guess where Simon is from. Oh, wow. um, and, <laughs> and no one guessed um, because, you know, they weren't aware of the condition vitiligo, but they also had all of these assumptions about what people could do according to their um, ethnicity. Uh, so, yeah, so Mr. Cole um, and his staff and his sort of approach really challenged people to, to think outside the box. Mm. Now, the Coles Book Arcade sounds like it was a magical place to be in late 19th century Melbourne. What made you take that step further and add actual magic to the story? Uh, there were a couple of reasons. Um, one of them was that it already seemed like a magical place, you know, along the lines of Wonka's Chocolate Factory or the Magic Faraway Tree. Uh, but I also wanted to incorporate some things that a sort of natural, naturalistic kind of story wouldn't allow. So one of the great things about Cole's Funny Picture Books is that they have all these games and puzzles in them. Um, and I love games and puzzles of all kinds. Uh, so I wanted to incorporate those. I wanted those to be part of the plot somehow. And I thought, you know, if those were involved in it, then I could make it a kind of magical game. Um, but I also wanted to be able to have um, not time travel, but like to be able to look forward from 1893 into our time. Now, it's probably more like 2018 or 2019 than 2020 because um, nobody in that, you know, futuristic vision is wearing a mask. But... Um, but I did want the characters to be able to look forward and see uh, that so many of the wonderful things that Mr. Cole predicted about the future had come true. Things like, um, you know, a multicultural society and things like aeroplanes and um, rights for women and uh, access to education and all these things that Mr. Cole predicted <laughs> so, so long ago, um, I wanted to be able to put those in the story and, and um, have the story celebrate both the time when it's set without criticising our time. Mm. Um, because I find it very frustrating <laughs> when people complain about how much better things were in the good old days. Um, I think the good old days have more to do with when you are young rather than, you know, say the 60s being better than the 2010s. Um, so I, I wanted to both celebrate the past but not mourn it. Hmm. I suppose. And that, and that was a great scene. It was a really, really good scene. I really, I really appreciated that. I could <laughs> see, you know, this the celebration of, yeah, how far we've come, you know, and Pearl, um, you know, 
with the responsible dress code, you know, she, she was sort of looking ahead and, and to times where she would have more choices and more freedom and, you know, she could see that it was going to come. That was really nice. Yeah. Thank you. I enjoyed that so, so much because when you write <laughs> historical fiction, you sometimes can feel a little bit stifled um, by those conventions and oppressions and it was just so wonderful to be able to I mean I know I didn't really show the real pearl <laughs> what happened but it felt pretty good <laughs> to be able to put that thought into writing yeah fantastic um so where did the character of the obscure smith come from he's quite an, an enigmatic complex trickster figure well um he is just about the only character that i made up um but the reason that i made him up first of all was that uh the coles seemed to have a really happy wonderful life and i wanted <laughs> To, to put some conflict in there um, because while it's very interesting to learn about this wonderful life it didn't give me a plot um, so I thought first of all there's going to have to be some kind of conflict I'm going to have to make it up and the way that I decided to make that up was I had a I had an idea that I wanted to look for the opposite of Mr Cole so Mr Cole was just you know he had all these wonderful values but he was I'm afraid he was a bit of a nerd um <laughs> because he was self-taught he was big into education really interested in science really interested in evolution but also he didn't like to socialize <laughs> he was very against gambling and drinking um and his favorite thing to do was for fun was to um was to just relax at home with his with his wife and kids and maybe a couple of good friends. Um, didn't like to go to the theatre. So Mr. Cole embodied this idea for me of good, clean fun. And I thought, what is the opposite of good, clean fun? Well, if Mr. Cole likes to tell jokes that everyone can share and to uh, play games that are fun for everyone, what about, what if my villain um, liked to play jokes at other people's expense and liked games that were only fun for him. <laughs> um, and out of this came this idea of this smooth-talking trickster who just radiates confidence. Um, and I really enjoyed that idea. Uh, I got his design from just a little drawing in one of my uh, research books. I don't know who it was. It wasn't, it didn't have a caption, but it was just a drawing of a man in a top hat coming out of a dark alley. And I thought, boom, there he is. <laughs> um, and yeah, this idea that he was the opposite of Mr. Cole really interested me and I kind of built on that just every kind of vice and every kind of 
cruelty as opposed to Mr. Cole's sort of generosity. Um, and that, that made it really interesting to write both of them and, and, and to um, write Pearl and Valley's interactions with both of them too. Yeah, absolutely. And they had, you know, they had to learn a lot from his chickiness and, you know, using their experience <laughs> with their father, but then they had to sort of turn that against the obscurus myth. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was, you could probably tell I had a lot of fun writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> um, well, but on that note, um, one of the main themes in the book is a parent's enduring grief after losing a child and that he would do anything to have her back in fact it's the driver for the whole book really and drove other themes such as sibling relationships did this idea come from edward and and how difficult was it to write oh well yes this did come from uh from cole um ruby cole the fourth child really did pass away from scarlet fever in 1890 uh and I do think it had an impact on the family. We hear about people losing children young uh, in those days and sort of breeze past it. But I got the impression from what I read that, you know, it, it was a real grief just because it happened often didn't mean it hurt any less. Um, and um, there was a, a page dedicated to Ruby in one of the funny picture books uh, and there were some anecdotes that really conveyed the weight of that grief to me. Um, apparently Linda, the eldest daughter, the only time she ever saw her father cry was after he put this page for Ruby into um, the book. Uh, so I did, you know, I did think about whether it was okay to build um, the plot around this idea of Ruby's death, but I, I thought I could connect it to um, to the themes in a way that would be respectful. Um, and in the end, I realised that, you know, my disappointment about um, the book arcade no longer being there could be tempered by this idea that, you know, it might be gone, but at least it existed. And that's kind of where I went with Ruby's passing as well, um, because, you know, the Obscura Smith tries to bring her back, um, but it doesn't quite work. Um, and, and I thought that would be um, something I could use to sort of draw it all together. Um, and at the same time, you know, I was dealing with my own grandparents who, um, who were, you know, getting sick. Uh, and my grandpa actually um, passed away back in April. Um, so, yeah, so I sort of drew all those things together. Um, and yeah, even though, even though it was real, I thought it was long enough ago and, um, and that I could sort of deal with it respectfully um, that, you know, that I wouldn't, wouldn't be doing the coals an injustice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to um, explore the siblings memories and their relationships with each other, how that changed without Ruby there and, and those kinds of things. I think, um, you know, as a parent reading it, it's pretty hard, but I think for kids, kids will have a different, you know, a different sort of viewpoint when they read it. So 
Um, and I think you did handle that well, yeah. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> there were there were times where I would just sit at the desk and like grab my head in both hands and go, "Oh my God, that was a heavy scene." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I can't. I have to say, I got to the end with a you know few tears, but <laughs> um, yeah, like a, you know, hooray! I love making people cry. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but you know, uh, you know, anything, any any book that has kids. Um, Oh, you know, dying or, or just having really hard times is pretty hard as a mum. So, um, yeah, hopefully kids will not have quite the same um, emotion around that. Um, so tell us about the process of editing and refining the book and then how, you know, you got that contract and that came out into the world. Uh, well... My first draft took me 13 months, but it was a lot shorter than the finished product. Um, so shortly after I finished it, I queried it to a couple of different places, including a firm press. Um, and they were the ones who showed the most interest in it. Um, so I said, let's do it. Um, but I didn't get the contract straight away. Uh, I did a round of revisions and then we sat down again and we talked again and then they made me the offer. I accepted it um, with gusto, <laughs> but we did um, several more rounds of revisions. So it went from being about 48,000 words to about 75,000 words. Mm -hmm. um, and in those early drafts, the memory loss plot wasn't as developed. Um, I didn't really have rules for magic. I was just sort of going off. It's whimsical. Anything can happen. Um, but I developed that magic system um, over time and uh, at my editor's insistence. <laughs> um, and I'm actually really pleased that they pushed me to develop the magic system because now I feel like what I've got works so well with the world I've built this idea that you can only make magic happen just like you can make anything happen in the world only by a combination of, you know, being able to visualize it first, but then actually taking action to put it into the world. Um, and by having the motivation, the conviction to do it, as well as a little bit of luck, um, I'm really pleased they pushed me to do that. And I'm also really pleased that they pushed me to include more of the, the siblings, uh, Linda, Eddie and Ivy, because in that, you know, shorter, earlier draft, they weren't really in it as much. They were sort of on the periphery. Um, but, you know, people said, well, can we see more of them? Uh, and I'm really glad that, uh, that we did get to explore that in the end. That sounds great. It must be great working with a firm. A firm, um, I really, I don't think there's been a book that I've read of theirs that I haven't really loved. So, um, they're yeah, fantastic. They're, they're <laughs> so fantastic. Um, and I mean, I like to think I make myself pretty easy to work with because I, I'm the kind of person who says yes to everything. Um, but they have been absolutely wonderful. I've enjoyed working with everyone from, you know, my editors to um, my publicists. Um, everyone's really just enthusiastic and determined to make this book succeed. So it's been really wonderful working with them. That's great. And I think it's, 
going to succeed very well. And I read somewhere that you're working on another book now. I sure am. Uh, shall I tell you a little bit about if you it? can, if you want to, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I would love to. Um, so my next book is a prequel uh, set 22 years earlier than The Grandest Bookshop in the World. It's set in Paddy's Market, uh, another lost Melbourne treasure. So like the book arcade, it's got many different departments, many different people working in it, but um, it's not as nice as the book arcade. Uh, lots of sort of dodgier characters and um, stranger things for sale. Uh, and the protagonist is young Billy Pike, who actually was the longest serving um, and earliest hired employee of Cod's Book Arcade. He was hired in his early teens. He's 12 in my story, but he was hired in his early teens by Mr. Cole before there was a book arcade, before there was even a brick and mortar shop. It was just a stall in the market. Um, and he went on to be the manager of the book arcade for, goodness me, I think it was nearly 50 years. Uh, he only left after Cole passed away. Um, and, you know, the management of the book arcade changed. So Pike has turned out to be a really interesting character. I've found a lot about him um, through my earlier research, but I've also found a lot about the market through newspaper archives online, which has been great because under lockdown, I haven't been able to get back to the state library, which is all the, where all the, the real gold mines are. Um, but Trove has been really fantastic. Mm, so good and that all online now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been looking at maps online, um, newspaper archives, but also ebooks like um, there's one called A City Lost and Found, which I've found really useful. I mean, hallelujah mm. <laughs> for the internet <laughs> because I would not be able to do any of this if it wasn't for those tools. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the Coles Book Arcade in your book was um, on Burke Street. Is that right? On where the Correct. Mall is. Yes. And so where was the Paddy's Market? Paddy's Market was also on Burke Street, but it was um, to closer to Parliament House. So it was actually between Russell and Exhibition Streets. Okay. Exhibition Street was called Stephen Street in those days, um, which is what initially made it hard to locate. I was like, where is Stephen Street? <laughs> but the name got changed. Um, and it was only about a block from um, Parliament House, which used to cause a bit of uh, a bit of conflict between the kinds of people who went to Parliament House and the kinds of people who went to Paddy's Market. Um, Melbourne, I don't know if you know this, but Melbourne was originally built without a public square because uh, the upper crust didn't want the common people to have a forum. They didn't want them to have a place to express their opinions. Um, but Paddy's Market ended up being that place. Uh, and once there was actually a riot incited by those political speeches in the market, um, someone threw a rock through a window of Parliament House. So um, 
that is probably why they renovated it in the late 1870s. Um, and when they renovated it, they turned it into this grand building, but the soul of it was gone. All the businesses had moved to the Queen Victoria market. Um, so the spiritual successor to Paddy's market is the Queen Vic market. Right. Which still going strong. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I can't wait to get back and immerse myself in it and, and do some experiential research. Mm. Don't worry, the whole of Melbourne is <laughs> really good for Oh dear, it's been a while since I've been to the Queen Vic Market actually, many years. Oh yes, and I grew up in the country too, so I'm always a little bit, I'm, I'm always a little bit sort of starstruck when I go into the city. It's very exciting, especially at night, I just sort of go into, you know, <laughs> mm. hillbilly in the big city mode. <laughs> I tell you what, I feel like that nowadays. I mean, I used to live on the verge of the city and could walk, you know, walk in within 10 minutes. But now, you know, we live in the suburbs with kids and we just never go anymore. So um, it is a bit like that when we go and we take the kids in. Look at this, look at that. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, even, you know, even I, I went to Melbourne Uni for four years and I still got so awestruck by the city i just i i'd love to visit it i would hate to live there but i would i'd just love to visit it so much history mm. uh so it's time for our six quick questions are you ready absolutely okay keyboard or pen and paper keyboard 100 <laughs> percent. favorite writing snack Currently, blueberries. Oh, yes. Amazing. I've got some growing in my Especially garden right now. Especially <laughs> the really big ones. Have you seen those Arana ones? No. Oh, they're massive and they're yeah. so delicious. Oh. They're very expensive though, so I have well, to ration them. Yeah. Well, we've got six, I think, six blueberry bushes in the garden or five. So they're all just <gasps> oh, flowering. Jealous. They're all small, but they're all flowering. So the kids can go out and pick them and eat them. <laughs> Yum. Um, tea or coffee? A coffee in the morning and then tea for the rest of the day. Sounds reasonable. Ebook or the real thing? Real thing. Mm -hmm. Cats or dogs? 100% dogs. Huh. Look, I can appreciate a nice cat, but it's, it's dogs all the way for me. <laughs> I'm with you, don't worry. Um, comedy or tragedy? Oh, what do I prefer or what's easier? Whichever you want to answer. <laughs> oh, look, comedy, I think. Um, I get a thrill out of writing sad scenes, angry scenes. Um, but at the end of the day, I've got to choose comedy. Nice. Um, and this one's easy. Where can our listeners find you if they want to find out more? Well, uh, they could follow me on Twitter at Amelia underscore R underscore Mel, or they are welcome to check out my blog, Amelia Mellor's Fantastic Narratograph. I should never have called it that because no one can pronounce it. <laughs> um, or you can just uh, email me at Amelia, all one word, at gmail.com. 
Well, thank you for joining me today, Amelia. It's been a real pleasure and good luck with not just this book, but the follow-up one as well. Thank you so much, Pamela. It's been wonderful. Leanne Tanner has been dynamited while scuba diving and arrested while busking. She once spent a week in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, hunting for a Japanese soldier left over from the Second World War. Nowadays, she lives by the beach in southern Tasmania with a large fluffy tomcat called Harry Lebeau. She is the best-selling author of the Keepers Trilogy, two-time Aurealis Award winner for Best Australian Children's Fantasy, and her books have been translated into 11 languages. Her recent picture book, Ella and the Ocean, illustrated by Jonathan Bentley, won the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Award for Children's Literature. Her latest book, A Clue for Clara, was published by Alan and Unwin in August 2020, of which we had the pleasure of reviewing. So welcome to Middle Grade Mavens. Thank you, Julie. It's lovely to talk to you and thank you for having me. Oh, it is such a pleasure to have you. Now, I have been to your fabulous website and read your 10 things about Leanne Tanner. It is utterly fascinating. Will you enlighten our listeners? And you are allowed to elaborate for as long as you like on how you got your start in writing. Oh, gosh. Uh, look, I, I wrote a lot when I was a kid. I, I, I can't remember when I started writing, but I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't writing. Um, uh, when I was a little kid, I used to write poetry. I used to write plays and take them along to school and persuade my classmates to perform in them. Um, and I used to write stories. But you know how we have become aware in fairly recently about the fact that there are good ways to praise children for their work and, and not so good ways to praise children for their work. You know, yes. we, we've sort of come to understand that that it's really good to praise kids for how hard they worked and how they persisted and all that sort of stuff. And it's not such a good idea to praise kids for being smart and clever. Yes. So I was a poster child for why that's not a good idea. <laughs> um, and, and looking back, I can see it so clearly because I got a lot of I got a lot of really positive feedback for what I was doing, you know, from my parents, from my and from my teachers, and that was yeah. lovely. You know, they they liked what I wrote and they they thought I was really smart, and I was told over and over again how smart I was. But what I can see looking back is how how much I valued that and how I started to not to want to lose it. Yes. And so I started to become risk averse mm. and you can't be risk averse and be creative. You know, those two things just don't go well together. Yes. So there came a point where I actually pretty much stopped writing. Uh, and I would do a little bit, you know, I'd write little poems for my friend's birthdays and things like that, but that was about it. And you combine that with becoming a teenager school boys then you know leaving school university work and all those sorts of things and basically I, I stopped writing yeah and I think it's it's really easy it, it's a it's quite a common thing as you grow up to lose track of the things that you loved when you were a kid you know I don't think that's uncommon so I basically uh stopped thinking of myself as creative I I 
just thought that I wasn't a particularly creative person. And it took me until I was in my late 30s to actually find my way back to that. And what happened was that I, I studied drama. I went to drama school. Yes. Two-year associate diploma in drama. And as part of that, we used to do these. We did a lot of uh, self-devised performances. And what would happen was that the, the lecturer would put us all in groups of about four or five people. And he'd say, okay, I want you as a group to create a soundscape, but you can only use your own body. No, no instruments, nothing else. And you've got 10 minutes and then you have to come back and perform it for the class. So we would race away and, and we'd go, okay, what can we do? Oh, we can stamp, we can slap our legs, we can make noises with our mouths. And we would throw these things together. And I had come before that point, I had, as I said, I thought of myself as uncreative, but I also had this really weird idea of what creative creativity was. I sort of thought that you had to sit sit down and think really hard yeah. about something. <laughs> you know that that was what you did, and and if ever I was trying to be creative, I would sit down and I would think really hard, and it never worked all that well. So what I learned from drama school, it didn't give me time to sit down and think really hard. It didn't give me time to think I'm not creative. You just had to get in and do it you know yes and it took away all that self-consciousness it took away all that that belief that I couldn't do it and it and it made me it made me realize that being creative is actually about mucking around it's actually yes. about playing and being silly and throwing ideas in and seeing what comes out of it so um I started writing again I started um I started writing plays and when I left drama school, I, I worked for three years as a professional actor with a little theatre and education company. And I yep. started writing plays for them. And that then got me back into writing. So yep. like it was this it was this long process of being creative, losing my creativity and then finding it again and, yep. and remembering how much I loved writing and how important it was to me. Yeah. Life's journey, isn't it? Oh, very much so, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's fascinating that you are well-known and awarded for your fantasy books, but A Clue for Clara is a hilarious mystery with a chicken protagonist. Did you just sort of wake up one day and say to yourself, sure, <laughs> this fantasy thing has been fun, but how about a chicken whodunit? <laughs> well, uh, not quite. I mean, it's still a fantasy, you know, let's yes, not lose of track of the fact that this is still a fantasy. Uh, no, look, I've, as you said, I've pretty much up until now, I had written fantasy and I'd written fantasy trilogies. Yes. And, and I love that form. I love the trilogy form because you can go so far with it. You know, you, you start, you, you can have this enormously long arc of what happens to the main character and so you have a little arc for each book and then you have this overreaching arc for the three stories and and that's something that is such a delight to play with but at the same time they take so long to write you know yes. a minimum of three years <laughs> probably more um and when I was writing The Rogues which is my most recent trilogy I kept having all these ideas for books and I couldn't get to them for another two years or another three yeah. years and I found that really frustrating. So that was a part of it. The other part of it was that my books were fairly long. So each of those, each book in a trilogy tended to come out about at about 60,000 words. And yep. that was 
that was the length that I naturally wrote those stories to. You know, it was the sort of degree of complexity that I wanted in those stories. But what I was really aware of was that when I went into schools, there were kids who loved that length of book. You know, there were, mm. there were confident readers who loved to disappear into a story, which is what I love. And they would grab those books and go, oh, yes, this is what I like. But there are so many kids who will look at a 60,000 word book and go, oh, no, that's, that's way too long for me. And they yes. would be put off by the sheer size of it. So I had been thinking for a while that I wanted to write something shorter and a little bit more accessible. And I had been thinking for a while as I wrote The Rogues that I really didn't want to launch myself into another trilogy. So it, the, A Clue for Clara came from the combination of those two things. Yeah. Uh, I wanted something a little bit lighter uh, because the stakes in my trilogies tend to be very much life and death. Yep. Uh, and so I wanted something lighter. I wanted something more accessible. And I thought, yeah, I want something. I want something funny. Because even before COVID-19 started or even before we became aware of it, the world, the world was looking pretty serious. Yeah. And, and pretty hard for kids to or for adults to deal with at times but you know particularly for kids and I'm I'm very big on comfort reading I think comfort reading is so important and quite often we we are aware that we as adults need comfort reading but we forget that kids also need comfort reading yes and a lot of that comfort reading is humor and I mm. thought okay I want to write something I want to write a comfort read yeah I want to write something that kids will laugh at and but that will also touch their hearts. Yeah. And so out of that came this idea of a took who wanted to be a detective. Um, and, and it just kind of, uh, it, it appeared out of nowhere to a certain extent. I mean, I had had chooks um, up until fairly recently. And so I guess they were on my mind. And yeah. where the idea of one of them wanting to be a detective, detective came from, I have no idea, <laughs> but as yep. soon, it was one of those ideas, you know, that as soon as it came into my head, I thought, oh yes, oh Run yes. Run with this, yep. Very much so. This is a story I want to write, yeah. I have to say, um, you may not listen to the Mavens and yeah, we'd never assume people do, but I was not a reader as a child. I didn't read until my late teens and I feel really passionate about those reluctant readers that don't always, they're not always going to launch into a 60,000 word book either. So I, I constantly, Pamela will read literally any, you know, any length, whereas I'm like, how many words are in that book? I need to know yes. because I have to invest and I still am like that at 46. So I completely understand the, the eight to 10 year old that is just looking at that thickness going, oh my goodness, that's just making yeah. me nauseated. So yeah, it's yes, look, great I... for, for um, confident readers, but reluctant readers are left in the dark. So Yes, we well, see. I'm I'm very much and and always was somebody who would who would see sixty thousand words. Can I have more? Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, and uh, like Pamela. Um, but doing school visits made me aware, in a way that I might not have been otherwise. Yes, of how for so many kids that is not the, that is not an option. Yeah, uh, and, and and it so might it, it might actually become something they do at a later age but in that eight yes. to ten oh 
that uh, my nine-year-old is very advanced and like she's reading you know she'd read a a a, a, a one of your books probably no trouble whereas there's kids in her class that are still you know reading very junior junior fiction yes and so it's such a divide even in within one year isn't it it is it's a huge divide and it feels lovely now to be able to because we've started doing school visits again in Tasmania yes uh, just just this term that um or sorry just at the end of third term the schools opened up again for visitors and so that has been just lovely and to be able to go into schools and say okay you know I've got these longer books but I've also got this shorter book and it's yes. funny and it's about a chicken who wants to be a detective and kids immediately go what yes yep <laughs> so that's that's been a really lovely thing yeah, you had me at Chicken Detective. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's the ultimate elevator pitch, isn't it? It's, isn't it's the ultimate yes. kind of really, you know, you don't have to worry about, okay, now how can I interest somebody don't in this You don't have to explain sport? that. How can I? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, of course, you had the wonderful Cheryl Orsini illustrating this book. Talk us through the process of working with an illustrator and were you pee pants excited when you saw Clara for the first time? <laughs> Pretty much so, yes. Uh, look, working with an illustrator is really interesting because I've done it a number of times now, uh, both for book covers and for interior illustrations and also, of course, for the picture book. Yes. But... I think what happens, what often happens when you're with a mainstream publisher, they will select uh, an illustrator who they have on their books or who they like the look of and who they think will suit your story. And of course, they have so much experience in that. And they will choose that illustrator and then they'll give you, they'll give them the manuscript. And I have had a number of circumstances, including this one, where I basically didn't have any contact with the illustrator yep. until after the pictures were done. Yep. So working with an illustrator has been remarkably easy in that basically I just get sent the roughs when the, yeah. when the illustrator has done their idea of rough rough drawings I get that in by email and then I get to say you know yes look I love this one uh, maybe the car's not quite right um, policeman dad uh, his his hat should be slightly different so, so you know like you can say small changes yeah. Uh, and, and that's pretty much my input as far as as far as the illustrator is concerned. Yeah. Having said that, I absolutely adore Cheryl Orsini's pictures in this. Yes. She has done such a brilliant job of capturing Clara. And when I saw that cover, you know, which is a mixture yeah. of her artwork and the designer, I was just blown away with it. She yep. captured Clara so brilliantly. And it's it's such a funny cover and it's such a sweet cover. And it's such an eye-catching cover, you know, it's all yes. those things all at once, which is just lovely. So, so yes, I, I think, I mean, I've, I've been immensely lucky in having wonderful illustrators do all my covers. Yeah. Uh, but at the moment, this is my absolute favourite because it's so, it, it's, it's kind of cartoonish and it's kind of so straightforward, but it's so eye-catching and attractive that I just yep. love it. You hit the jackpot with... Cheryl, she's one of my illustrator crushes, so oh, I completely understand. <laughs> I, look, I, I wasn't, 
I sort of was aware of her as an illustrator, but I hadn't had a look, a look at a lot of her work before she did this. Um, yes. But when, uh, when I was told that she was going to do the illustrations, I went and had a closer look and just loved what she does. Oh, she's yes. very stylized. Yes, um, she's and unique. Like I actually, I picked that it was Cheryl before I looked in and saw it was Cheryl. I was like, oh, oh did you? I, I know my illustrators. <laughs> yes, yes. She has a very distinctive style, doesn't yeah, she? And, it, yep. and as I said, it works perfectly for this book. It does. Now, I have been stalking your website again, and you are very active in schools, as you've said. You list three incredibly interesting workshops which you provide, but one has totally taken my fancy. Can you talk us through your Imagination Olympics? <laughs> yes, I can. Look, um, this is an idea that came to me a couple of years ago, and it actually grew out of the exercises that we used to do at drama school. Remember how I was saying that those time pressured exercises, they, they force you to not be so too self-conscious and they, they kind of almost force you into creativity despite yourself. I was thinking about uh, how within a classroom, you have a really wide range of kids and you have kids who are very comfortable with creativity and you have kids who don't think that they're any good at it. Yeah. And, and again, you know, when I've, when I've gone into, into schools and I say to kids who thinks of themselves as creative and maybe half of them will put up their hands and, and the other half just don't see themselves as something that that applies to. Yeah. So I started thinking about, well, how can I, how can I bring, bring a workshop into schools that's not just for the kids who like to write, it's not just for the kids who think of themselves as creative, it's for all these kids and it actually gives them some tools yeah. so that next time they have to sit down and write something, they, they have some, some resources, you know. Yeah, uh, And I was thinking about that time pressure and, and how, how useful that can be. So I worked out, I worked, and then I thought, oh, let's turn this into a competition because kids love competitions. And, and if they're working in a group and you get the teacher to choose the group beforehand, so it's not uh, all the kids who are friends and then you've got some kids who nobody chooses, you know, and, and having been a kid who nobody ever chose, I'm yes. very aware of that, mm. of that dynamic. Um, so I thought, okay, so you get the teacher to choose, choose the groups so that they are mixed, um, mixed groups, uh, mixed ability groups. Yes. And then they compete against each other in this imagination Olympics. And I am the umpire. I have a whistle. I have a time fantastic and <laughs> and they are competing as athletes of the imagination yeah and it's such fun and we have so we have each each uh, activity is timed and they're racing the clock and they have to brainstorm that's one activity they have to brainstorm a name for their main character yeah. um and then we do a, a a thing where they they have to sit with their eyes closed and imagine somebody giving them answers uh, about what their problem is. All these things are, are under time pressure. And then they have to negotiate with the rest of their group uh, to decide what they're going to choose. And we have all these different things until we came. Oh, they also have to make a map. That's also time wow. pressure. And at the end of each one, 
I blow the whistle. And then while they're thinking about the next activity, the teacher and I work out scores for each group, you know, depending on oh, how yes. well they work together as a team, how, how creative it was, how good their ideas were and all that sort of stuff. And at the end, they get medals. The winning team gets medals. Um, so the whole thing is enormous fun and I've just had such good response to it. Uh, kids, both, both primary school and high school kids really get into the, the fun of the competition, you know, yes. and really get into the game of it. So it's, it's huge fun to do and I and, really love doing it. And fast paced, no time for it's, moping about kind of no, stuff. Yeah. No, no. Well, I'm very glad that this is a podcast because I, I haven't taken any notes while you were explaining all of that, but now I can listen back and basically <laughs> just write down your every word <laughs> for the future. <laughs> so that was really my sneaky reason for asking that question. It was really all about me. But anyway, yes. you very kindly. <laughs> uh, so let's get back to a little bit more serious note. The pandemic has taken so much away from all of us and you've released a book during this time. How have you endeavoured to reach your readers in a different way compared to your traditional fantasy book releases? Oh, look, I think everyone's struggling with this. I think probably, probably every author in the world is struggling with this at the moment. Yes. Uh, Normally, if with Clara had been timed to come out in book week oh, in yes. August, yep. and uh, I was going to be in Sydney <clears throat> visiting schools, and then I was going to be going to the Brisbane Writers Festival. Oh, it's uh, my favourite. So, you know, there were there were all these things that were going to be part of her coming out and of launching her. We were going to do yep. a Sydney launch well as a Tasmanian launch and of course none of that happened and and everybody's in the same boat where we are struggling to get traction for new books um yep. I I don't think I'm doing anything special you know I'm I'm going on podcasts like yours yep uh and I'm sort of so thankful that people have set up these podcasts and that some of them been running for such a long time and you know so thankful that there are people around who who are trying to get word out about new books and who are reviewing yep. new books and talking to authors. Um, I had an in-person launch in Hobart uh, a couple of weeks ago. And again, because Hobart is, because we are doing really well down in here in Tasmania because of the moat. Yes. Um, <laughs> we were, <laughs> we were able to have a, a launch with real people in the bookshop, which was absolutely delightful fun. Yes. Um, and I'm doing school visits here, as I said, but, Apart from that, I'm I'm just putting myself out wherever I can and struggling as much as anyone and yeah. and just hoping that hoping I guess that the book will speak for itself. Uh, oh, it hoping does. that word of mouth, hoping it that does. word of mouth will get it around. <laughs> well, that's lovely. That's lovely, yeah. Julie. Thank you. Well, my nine-year-old stole it first and read it yeah. and said, "You have to read this book." And I was like, "Well, oh, I was that's going nice. to." <laughs> <laughs> but yes, now I will definitely. So, yeah. So your fantasy series has been incredibly well received and has been translated into 11 languages. What has been your highlight in writing that series? Oh, this would be the Keepers trilogy. Um, look, there were a number of highlights with that. I got to go to America for a pre-publication pre tour 
uh, to go to five different states, which was amazing. It was really really lovely. Um, I mean, it was also exhausting, you know, like book tours, especially international book tours are that mixture of, oh, my God, is this really happening to me? Yes. And, oh, dear, I am absolutely exhausted and brain dead. And can I please go and hide in a corner and lie down? Um, so, but you know, you, you, you kind of have to put aside the want to go and hide in a corner for a week and just, or a week and a half, I think it was nearly two weeks, uh, and, and just go, okay, for the rest of the year, I can hide. I just need to do this. Uh, So that was really amazing. I also got to go to India for, um, a children's book festival for the Bukaroo Children's Book Festival, which was absolutely wonderful. Uh, So those two things were major highlights. But I think the big highlight is something much smaller that only happened to me uh, about a year ago when I, because The Keepers, it was published in 2010 and it's still in print and it's still selling. And about a year ago, I got a private message from a kid who said, Oh, first of all, I should say that The Keepers is about um, a city where everybody has become so frightened of risk and danger that the children wear little guard chains to to chain them to their parents when they're um, whenever they go outside the house. Um, And there's one girl, Goldie Roth, who who rebels and and runs away. so about a year ago, I got a letter, a, a private message from a kid who said, um, Dear Ms. Tanner, uh, I just wanted to tell you how much I love the Keepers trilogy. Um, I have been a foster child all my life. And on my worst days, I felt as if I was in chains. And then I would go and I would hide in my room and lock the door and read Museum of Thieves. And that helped oh. me get through it. I can't even speak. I know, I know. I, that just touched me so deeply. She said, thank you for writing this book. So, you know, what What could any author ask for that was yep. better than that and that you was have more... have done your job. ..more heart-touching than yep. that. So that, yes, that, that was absolutely and utterly the highlight. Oh, I am... Uh, Lucky Leah, I'm going to say your name wrong. Leon, lucky you can't actually see me because our camera wasn't working, but there are lots of tears on this side of the camera. Oh, that yes. is, uh, that is yeah. the ultimate. Yeah. I wept when, when I got it. I, oh. And I thought, oh, look, if I had written this book and you were the only person who had ever read it, then yes. it would have been worth it. Which is what they say that you should do. You should think of that one child and write it for that one child so yeah 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 so is there perhaps a middle grade book on your shelf can it be new can be old which you would love to give some love to oh yes look i this is a this is a a very new book it's kate gordon's latest the heart song of wonder quinn oh yes um it is absolutely beautiful she's done something which is quite unusual in middle grade in that she's written a, a gothic novel for middle yes. grade. Yes. Um, and that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, the Lemony Snicket books were gothic, uh, but it's not something that comes up very often in middle grade. And, and, and Lemony Snicket got away with it by making them funny. You know, they yes. were immensely funny with, with the gothicness. This isn't funny. It's, it's quite a serious, sad little novel 
about uh, an orphan called Wonder Quinn who, who lives in the attic of Dyerleaf Hall and her only company is a crow. And each year, because Dyerleaf Hall is a school, and each year she, she hopes that amongst the new kids to the school she'll be able to make a tr true friend and each year her heart breaks when she doesn't. But this year something is different. And this is the most beautiful, beautiful story and it's sad and it's moving but it's also she has hit the spot as far as middle grade is concerned and yes. quite a young middle grade age you know sort of it's not yes. kind of like upper upper range for middle grade it's it's quite suitable for the younger kids it's it's a very gentle sweet story it's sad in places but it's also immensely beautiful and hopeful and and I just loved it. It's it's quite enchanting. I think she's yes. done an amazing job with it. We um, did actually have that book on our podcast a few episodes ago, and we oh, I didn't hear that. Yes, and we interviewed the lovely Kate, and I had exactly the same opinion that that book was exquisite. So mm. yes, mm. I it was one of those books that. It actually arrived for, with a feather, a black feather. <laughs> and Giselle and I looked at it and we said, this one is special. And yes. we, were, we were not wrong. So, Well, yeah. look, even from the title, the title is beautiful. Yes. The cover is, the cover is absolutely gorgeous. Yep. Um, and, yeah, I think she's done an amazing job with it. Yep. And we have insider information that she is writing a second book which we are absolutely chomping for. So, I say, Like set in that same world? Yeah, yeah, set in the same oh, world. Oh, okay. Yep. Oh, how interesting. Yes, we cannot wait. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was very kind and generous of you um, because I, I know a lot of people, they kind of balk at that question because they think they have to bring up an old one that they read when they were, you know, nine. <laughs> but we actually want people to just keep opening their eyes to new books as well. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. And what is next in the wings for Lee and Tanner? In the wings? Was that meant to be a pattern? Well, <laughs> obviously. It's very appropriate. <laughs> it's very appropriate. I'm actually writing a follow-up to Clara. Great. Um, I'm, it's not going to be a trilogy. I, I have sworn to myself that it's not going to be a trilogy, but I, um, I got to the end of it and I thought, oh, look, there is another book here. Yes. Um, but not told from Clara's point of view. It's it's oh. actually told from the point of view of a duck. Oh, so fantastic. Um, so it's kind of you know like hopefully it will again be funny and um, and and it's fairly gentle story, but told by this mad duck. Fantastic. So that's and that's that's at the moment the title is Rita's Revenge. Um, I love it so oh. but I'm still in the middle of writing that so that's that's a way off yeah well I mean you you can't just write one chicken whodunit you just can't. I know, I know. <laughs> this will also be a whodunit yeah oh. <laughs> we can't wait keep us in mind <laughs> <laughs> although we have I friends will. in high places so really I know. I, I know I where know. to find these handy? things <laughs> 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 oh we can't wait Rita was my grandmother's name. 
So oh, was it? that name always will be special. So I cannot I wait for see- Rita's revenge. <laughs> 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 so where can our listeners find you if they are interested in checking out your books? Okay, so my website is leantanner.com. Um, I'm on Facebook with Lee and Tanner Author. I'm on Instagram with Lee and Tanner Books and I'm on Twitter with something or other that I can't remember, but you just yes. have to search for Lee and Tanner. I yes. mean, you're supposed to have the same tag for yes. all of these, you know, same. which is the sensible thing to do. Not. And I'm not. I'm completely no. different from no. all of them. Well, I made my Twitter handle like 12 years ago. <laughs> There's no way <laughs> it was going to be the same. So, yeah, I completely exactly. understand. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Well, it has been a complete delight. I can't wait for Rita's Revenge. And um, thank you once again for joining us. Oh, thank you, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks for stopping by Middle Grade Mavens. If you'd like to know more about the Mavens, log on to middlegradepodcast.com or to find Julie online, stop by julieandgrassobooks.com and to find Pamela, stop by www.ueckerman.net. <laughs>